Happy New Year's. Come on, he warmed you up earlier, but uh, I, I think I'm already seeing yawning and that. So everybody, make sure to get them all out right now. We got a big year ahead of us, and it's going to start this morning. So, uh, you know, as uh, Pastor Tim asked me a, a, a few weeks back if if I would speak today, and and of course with uh, New Year's being on a Sunday, it, it, it's just kind of unusual uh, that way. I know it happens about every seven years, but. Uh, um, is it me? It just seems as if uh, it's 2012. Is that an incredible thing? I, it just all of a sudden, it's like the last month or so just flew by. And, uh, and maybe it's just being so busy and so much going on, the activity of the church and all that God's doing. It is just uh, an amazing thing that all of a sudden, here we are, January 1st and the new year. So here's my question. Do we have any New Year's resolutions? Anybody have any New Year's resolutions? I know it's that time of year. And once again, so many times uh, we make those resolutions. Maybe a few of you, like myself, have actually stood in front of the mirror and taken a look and said, hmm, maybe this year it's time to drop a little weight Maybe it's time to do, I don't know, this or that. I'll be honest with you, I'm not a big New Year's resolution kind of guy. Because for me, generally, New Year's resolutions really means the first two weeks of January resolutions, right? We start off great in that first week and maybe into that second week and then after that, uh, we're in the middle of January and it's all starting to settle in and the New Year's resolutions go by the wayside. As I was thinking about that and resolutions, so I was reminded, uh, if any of you have heard of Jonathan Edwards, Jonathan Edwards was a, a preacher and a theologian in the early 18th century and uh, lived to be about mid-50s. He actually uh, died of smallpox from a vaccination for smallpox, if you can believe that. But uh, he was part of the Great Awakening, uh, one of the Puritan writers, really considered uh, one of America's greatest theologians and and uh, he was missionary to the Native Americans. And, but Jonathan Edwards, famous for the uh, sermon, Sinners uh, uh, in the Hand of an Angry God. And maybe you've heard of that, even read it in literature. It's in a lot of the literature books and stuff as well. But Jonathan Edwards also was unique in that he wrote 70 resolutions. And uh, with that, even... Uh, uh, the first 21 of those 70 resolutions he wrote when he was 17 years old. Uh, here are some of these resolutions. They weren't New Year's resolutions, but these were resolutions that he had written uh, in his desire to want to live a holy life for God. Here are, are just a couple of them that, that he wrote. Resolved, never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, more or less, which tends to the glory of God. Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were my last hour of life. Resolved never to do anything out of revenge. Resolved never to speak evil of anyone so that it shall tend to his dishonor more or less upon no account except for some real good. Resolved to maintain the strictest temperance in eating and drinking. That's. It's the weight loss resolution there. Here's one of my favorites, though. Resolved. Whenever I do any conspicuously evil action, 
to trace it back till I come to the original cause. And then both carefully endeavor to do so no more and to fight and pray with all of my might against the original of it. In other words, when I blow it, to figure out why it was that I did and to stop it. These were some of his resolutions, not not New Year's resolutions, but I think it's a pretty incredible thing for a 17-year-old who was so on fire for God that he sat down and said, what is it that I can do? He would actually read through those resolutions once a week to remind himself of what it was that he was trying to do. You know, as we think of the new year, I, I couldn't think of a better passage, though, to start off 2012 than to look at what God can teach us from Daniel chapter 1. We're going to read about an, a, a few others, really four other young men who resolve, who, ta- who decide to take a stand and live a no-compromise life in the midst of some very difficult circumstances. I, I encourage you to turn to Daniel chapter 1. And uh, the usher's going to come forward. If you need a Bible, just slip up your hand. We'd love to get uh, one into your hands. You can borrow that. Uh, we're going to be in the Old Testament, the first of the, of the minor prophets there in Daniel chapter 1. And I'm just going to give you a little heads up. Uh, the theme here throughout this chapter and really through the first half of this book you're going to see is really the, a sovereign God. You're going to see a sovereign God at work and then how these individuals interact and, and choose and have personal choice in the midst of this sovereign God who is at work. And we'll highlight a few of those as we see them when they come up. But point number one, the first section that we see in the first seven verses is to honor God in all circumstances. Honor God in all circumstances. Starting Daniel chapter 1 verse 1. And in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands and some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank, And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. So here we go. We see... A number of circumstances. And we see these four individual here, Daniel and his three friends, who find themselves in some very peculiar circumstances. And probably none of us can even remotely relate to the situation that they were in. But we see these circumstances. starts off in verse 1 and we see that this was the first of three exiles. 
That the, the nation of Judah, that was the, the divided kingdom, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And because of their disobedience and, and Jeremiah chapter 34 talked about prophesied that they were going to be sent into exile. It would be a period of about 70 years. And it was because of their disobedience, because of turning their back on God. It was because of the, them forsaking the, the Sabbath and the sabbatical year uh, for a number of different things. It was also because of their consequences of not following God and for their idolatry. And, and Jeremiah chapter 7 and into chapter 8 spoke of, of this prophecy of what was going to take place because of their disobedience. And so we see that Jehoiakim, the king, and Nebuchadnezzar, this Babylonian king, and many, I'm sure you've, you've heard of him, even from history, and famous for this Babylonian empire as they go in and they lay siege to, to Jerusalem. And the first of three times that they will go in and they actually take back things from the temple, as well as they take, take back people back to the land of Shinar, really another name there for Babylon. And they were going back into that area, which is now modern-day Iraq, ironically. But we see uh, a key phrase there. Verse 2. They besiege it and it says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim. We're going to see that. The Lord gave and God gave. Three times in this passage we see this. And it's just a reminder that in the midst of the circumstances, in the midst of all that was going on, and and so you can so easily get caught up in those circumstances, but yet always remember that a sovereign God is in control in that midst. And here this was still a part of God's plan and a part of God's prophecy. But we see this now, a new character to the story here, Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch. And I'll be honest with you, there's a, there's a lot of speculations amongst theologians whether he was even actually a eunuch or, or not. Uh, this, in the original language, the term there uh, was used for the official steward. Uh, ironically, it's actually the same Hebrew word that was used of Pharaoh, who was uh, uh, the, the chief of, of the guard there of, of, of uh or I'm sorry, of uh, Potiphar, who, who was Pharaoh's uh, chief of, uh, guard there, the official steward of that. But either way, we see Ashpenaz was in charge of these men, these four men that, that, that we see named in this story, as well as many others that they took back with them from Judah back to Babylon. And he commands this eunuch to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and nobility, And that leads us to the next question. So who were these individuals, these young men that were brought back? Uh, There would have been many that would have been brought back as slaves. But we see these men were of noble birth. They were royalty in Judah. Uh, Their families were uh, prominent people. And there's some speculation as to why this was not an uncommon practice in those days for the conquerors to take children of the conquered, of the nobility, and bring them back and start to integrate them into their society. And a few reasons might be that it would keep their families, the, the, the ruling families back in Judah, it would keep them under control knowing that they, in essence, had their children hostage, slaves in, in this new land. It may have been just to gloat over the victories that they had. And as you saw, these individuals would be a constant reminder of this conquering army and the, the uh, um, victories that had been brought about from them. 
And it also may have just been a practical matter of making it easier to deal with these lands within the empire as they had these children and, and integrated them in and started to, to then interact back with these conquered lands. But for whatever reason, we see that these young men now find themselves taken against their will in this land of Babylon. And they find themselves in the palace actually to be trained. These, these uh, young men were, were good looking. Uh, they were the best and the brightest. Uh, it is speculated they were probably within the age of, of 15 to 17 years old. They were in the late teens. Uh, they were highly intelligent. And they were to be, their training was to be separate. Their training was to be indoctrinate, really to brainwash them into that culture. Uh, they would uh, learn the ways of the Chaldeans. They would even learn the language in that land. All of that to indoctrinate them, to incorporate them into that society. And it says that the training was going to be for three years. How did they get there? Was it because of their choice? Well, there's nothing that reads in this passage that says that it was their choice. But we see that a sovereign God has placed them in these difficult circumstances. We also see their, their godly heritage. We see at least for these four. And evidently it kind of lends you to speculate that they, uh, they came from maybe God-fearing families. Now, although they were there and had been exiled because of the sin of the people, yet we see even their heritage and the names that they were given. Daniel and his name means God is my judge. And so what do the Babylonians do? They change the name to Belteshazzar, which means may Bel protect his life. Bel being the chief, the main god of the Babylonians. Hananiah meant uh, Jehovah is gracious. And so his name was changed to Shadrach, meaning command of Aku. Aku was the moon god of the Babylonians. Mishael, was, uh, his name meant who is what God is. And so his name was changed to Meshach. Who is what a coup is? Uh, Azariah, the Lord helps. And his name was changed to Abednego, servant of Nebo. Nebo was the son of the Babylonian god, Bel. And so they take these young men and they put them into this new environment. They change their names. They teach, start to teach them the new language, trying to to indoctrinate them, to brainwash them into this new culture and assimilate them. And hopefully over time, with some three years of education, then they will actually use them to start uh, ruling in that land. You know, these were the circumstances that they found themselves in. And some could look at this and see a whole lot of problems. Right? Maybe you're here, January 1, 2012, and you reflect back to this last year and you say, boy, I've got a lot of problems. Maybe 2012 looks bright and encouraging and maybe 2012 looks rather bleak and discouraging. You know, it's difficult many times because there's a fine line between seeing problems and seeing opportunities. 
The difference between problems and opportunities many times comes down to perspective. We see these young men had some problems. They were there. They were forced against their wills. But they also, we're going to see, had some amazing opportunities. I was reminded a number of years ago, many, many years ago, a large uh, American shoe company decides to send two representatives to the Aborigines, the natives on the Australian outback. And their, their goal for their shoe company was to increase their market share, to, uh, to actually create new markets and to find out others where they could branch out into Australia and specifically into the outback with the Aborigines. And so some time went by as these two sales reps went and, and interacted with the people and got to know them and to see their life and their culture and to see what the possibilities of the shoe company branching out into Australia and into this area would be. And so these two reps sent back each their own telegram. The first rep, his telegram read as, as thus, no business here, stop. Natives don't wear shoes. Stop. Doesn't look real good there. But the second rep, his telegram read this way. Great opportunities here. Stop. Natives don't wear shoes. Stop. What's the difference? It's the perspective. It's how we're viewing the circumstances that we're in. No matter how bleak, whatever is going on, understanding that we serve a sovereign God who is still in control in the midst of it. We have choice. We have decision. We have much that he calls us to do, but never lose sight of the fact that he is in control and sovereign. So my question is, what is your attitude? About the circumstances that you're in. Maybe there's a trial. Maybe it's something James 1 says. That we, we have trials in our lives. Things outside force thrust upon us. Nothing that we brought on ourselves. Maybe some of the circumstances you're in. Is a result of, of consequences. Kind of a, a Galatians chapter 6. Where we reap what we sow. Whether it's a trial. Whether it's a consequence. Whatever we're in. We know God says. All things will work together for our good. To those who love God called according to to his purpose. God wants to use it for our good. So what's your attitude about the circumstances you're in? Have you chosen to please God? To bring him glory and honor in whatever circumstances you find yourself? Point number two. As we continue in our passage here, we see choose to live for God and please Him. Choose to live for God and please Him. Verse 8. But. We see the circumstances, and that's a small word, but a powerful word. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? 
So you should endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the chief whom, uh, I'm sorry, the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of our youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. And so he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, he was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. And so the steward took away their food and wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Well, we see Daniel now. Daniel and his three friends, it's implied there. And we see that they followed along and evidently Daniel took some leadership in this. But Daniel, it says, resolved. Some of the translations say he purposed within his heart. He decided that he would not defile himself by eating the food that was going to be presented. So what's the big deal with this food? What was the big deal? Why why was this even an issue? Um, Obviously, it was intended to be a generous, lavish gift from the king. They were going to eat the same food that the king was eating. It was the best of the foods. Uh, it, it was, it would have included many of the delicacies and, and, and much of just the, the best of the best of what they had to offer. However, the food did not meet the requirements of the Mosaic law. It probably was not prepared right. And it for sure would have included, uh, foods that were forbidden by Jewish law. Um, also it had first been dedicated to the idols. And partaking of that food in in their minds would have been acknowledging those idols as deities. And it was something here that these four individuals said, we cannot be a part of this. And so what they said is there's no room for compromise. You know, isn't it interesting as, as you read this, and it, sometimes we lose sight of that. Maybe we've heard this story many times before, and we lose sight of the fact these were real people in real times and real situations. These were guys in their late teens in a foreign land that were slaves, that were ripped away from their families. And yet we see the integrity and the character that they say we will not compromise. If anybody had an excuse to compromise, I would think it would be these guys. I mean, you can imagine the rationalization, and maybe if you're like me, it, at times we, we go through this, this justifying and rationalizing in our own minds, and, and I mean, I mean, they, they, they don't have mom, there's, they don't have dad, they don't have their pastors looking over their shoulders, they, <clears throat> they are on their own. Come on, let's just, let's just make the best of this opportunity. Let's just, cruise on by slide under the radar we're not going to make any waves we're not going to definitely not going to attract attention to ourselves or do anything that would bring reproach on us i mean come on look at the situation that god has placed us in and yet that is exactly not the response that they had it was just the opposite they decide they purpose they resolved at that point that we will live a no compromise life and in this area there would not be compromise so how do we have that kind of resolve how do we have that kind of resolve here you go four keys to resolve to follow god four keys to resolving to follow god you can probably come up with more but these are four biggies i think that are they're vital 
if we're to live lives like this. Number one, diligently transform your mind to seek him. Diligently transform your mind, or you could say it this way, set your thinking. Uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I beseech you, uh, I, I beg of you to present your body as a living sacrifice. And verse 2 says, by the transforming, transforming by the renewing of your mind. Philippians 4, 8 talks about the things that we are to think of. It's right and just and holy and pure and, and of good report and lovely and excellent. All the lists that we see there is literally saying, set your thinking. What you see, what you read, what you listen to. What you dwell on, what, what we watch. Many times we're, we're just lulled to sleep, I think, by, by, and lose sight of the impact of all that is around us and how the effect that it has on us. And, and the fact that we should be diligent to guard our minds, to, to protect our minds and control our thinking, to set our thinking. Number two, search for God's wisdom in his word. Search for God's wisdom in His Word. To meditate, to memorize it. Literally, to know what is right and what is pleasing to God. To be intimately familiar with His Word. Number three, develop a lifestyle of praise and worship. Develop a lifestyle of praise and worship in everything that we do. Understanding this, that we are created worshipers. Do you realize that? Worship isn't what, what we do for, for 45 minutes on a Sunday morning. Worship is what we do all the time. We are worshiping something or someone all the time. Some of the time, I'm worshiping God. Some of the time, unfortunately, I'm worshiping, worshiping myself, others, things. But when we set and we develop a lifestyle of praise and worship, it, it leads to thanksgiving. It leads us constantly to be saying, you are a great God. <coughs> praise and glory be to you. Number four, walk in kindness and integrity towards others. Walk in kindness and integrity towards others. How we interact with each other. Living lives of integrity. Living lives of, of kindness. Proverbs sixteen seven says that when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, even his enemies will be at peace with him. Romans twelve eighteen says, as much as it depends on you, and everything doesn't, but as much as it does, Live at peace with all men. With those four things, transforming our mind, searching God's word, developing a lifestyle of praise and worship, living with kindness and integrity towards others, will greatly help us to be able to resolve to live this no compromise life that we see here. You know, it's interesting as, as Daniel works through and and again, in verse 9, we see, and God gave, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief unions. It's the second time we see this sovereign God at work. But instead of open defiance or rebellion, we see Daniel and his 
three friends decide to make an appeal to their authority. And they make a respectful appeal. And, and, and we see that there would definitely have been some risk to Ashpenaz. And, and we see that, in, I think, in verse 10 here. He says, I fear my Lord, the king, who assigned your food. And at the end of the verse, he says, so would you endanger my head with the king? Literally, he's saying, look, if you don't work out so well, I'm going to lose my head over this. Okay, this isn't something he was willing to play around with. This was pretty serious business and a serious charge that had been given to him to care for and have the well-being of these young men and to provide for them so that they could accomplish the goal that Nebuchadnezzar had set for them. And and we see that uh, their compromise, their, their appeal was instead of eating these foods which we can't eat, how about though if we eat Vegetables and water instead and and the word vegetables there it probably included uh, it, Really the the word there means food uh, grown from the ground Probably would have included fruits and even some grains and, and breads and those type of things But would have been limited to that and water instead of the the wine that all of which had been presented to the idols there And and they said put it to a test. How about 10 days? Well, let's just have a little test run and see how it works and so Ashpenaz then agrees to that. Just on a side note here. There's a great example here. Of, so what do we do when, um, when an authority asks us to do something that we deem as being wrong and against God's word? How do we handle those times? And, and let's be honest, it doesn't happen often for us, does it? Especially not in this life, in this culture. But sometimes you're faced, whether at work or a boss or even sometimes parents or teachers or someone else. So what do we do? How do we make an, uh, an appeal? And here we see a little five-step approach here from, from this passage here. Number one, check your attitudes and clear your conscience. First thing is understanding why is it I don't want to do this? Is it really, is this an issue of right or wrong or is this just an issue of preference? And if it's an issue of preference, then we probably need to uh, consider just going along with what the authority is asking us to do. But if it's an issue of right or wrong, if it's an issue of, of what God says in his word, then number two, discern the authority's basic intentions and design creative alternatives. Isn't that what Daniel did? He said, okay, so what's this really about? What was it that Ashpenaz was really about? Ashpenaz was about making sure they were cared for so that he could save his head. He just, his job was to make sure that they were healthy. Make sure they were capable of the education and the training program that they were in. That was his intention in all this. He, I wonder, he probably could have cared less actually what they were eating as long as they were in good condition. And so they, they, they design a creative alternative in that. Number three, respectfully appeal to the authority. We see nothing but respect, but kindness as he approaches the steward. He respectfully, he understands that he's in a tough spot. He understands that they have authority to, to press this upon them, but yet he respectfully appeals to that authority. And then number four, give God, give God time to change the authority's mind. Give time. Allow God to work. Pray through that time. For, for these young men, it was a period of 10 days. And then number five, 
only last here. Take a stand. Be willing to suffer for not doing what is wrong. Be willing ultimately to take a stand. In this case, they didn't need to. But we're going to see, as, or you'll see if you read on in the book of Daniel, you'll see a couple of other occasions. Chapter 3, we're going to see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they're commanded to bow before the golden idol there of Nebuchadnezzar. And they say, we cannot do this and it will, it will cost them. They will be thrown into a fiery furnace. And face imminent death in that situation. Daniel chapter 6. We see Daniel in face with, with stopping his prayer life to God. And, and it cost him a night in the pit with lions. And yet we see in all of these individuals being willing to take that stand. But, but after 10 days, these four individuals, it says, looked great. Looked healthier than all of the rest. And so Ashpenaz makes it permanent. You know, choosing to do what is best. Sometimes that means making a choice that, that may not in the moment appear to be a great choice. Or it may not in the moment appear to, to work out so well. But yet we know that overall in the long run, it is the best thing to do. Anybody remember a number of years ago? On Saturday evenings, you could turn on ABC and watch the wide world of sports. Remember that? They had the big globe that you could see through that was spanning the globe to bring you a variety in sports. The thrill of victory. And you saw pictures of victorious athletes in different settings. And the... The agony of defeat. And when the agony of defeat came on the screen, what was the scene that we saw? The, 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 the ski jumper who comes off there flying legs and skis everywhere in this horrific crash of the agony of defeat. Well, this week I learned a little something about the individual pictured in the agony of defeat. His name is uh, Vinko Bogota of Yugoslavia. And the irony in that is that this individual, actually his first jump of the day, had actually set a new record for the longest ski jump. And he recounts later that as he was in later in the day and it had gotten colder and actually had, fro- had, had, had iced over there, and he starts down the run that we see in the infamous agony of defeat scene, and he realized that he was going too fast. And his fear was that he would jump past the slope that they were supposed to land on and actually would hit the flat ground and would cause possibly death or really bad injury. And so when you kind of see it in there, he actually decides it would be better to go down beforehand and control the crash than to go and possibly be far hurt, far worse. And so actually... It was intentional. He chose to do what we all have seen for years and years and years um, because he thought it would be better than what was to come if he didn't. And that's a little bit 
of what we see here with Daniel. So let me ask you a question. Where are you allowing compromise in your life? We see these individuals living this no compromise life. Where are you allowing compromise in your life? What's hindering you? What's holding you back from having an all-in approach? What is it? Are you ready to say in 2012, Lord, you have all of me? Are you willing to say this week, Lord, take all of me? I'm going to hold nothing back. Are you willing to say it today? Leads us to the third section here in our passage. Point number three. Trust God to bring about his results. Trust God to bring about his results. Starting in, now in verse 17, we pick up. It says, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke to them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, he stood before the king. And in every manner of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them to be ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first reign of King Cyrus. Once again, we see that phrase in verse 17. And God gave. The third time, the Lord gave. God gave. And God gave them learning and skill. Understanding God had enabled them and gifted them in many different ways. And even here, God was continuing to bless them and give them the ability to learn and the ability to learn at a, at a much greater rate than, than all the rest that were there. God gave them and he blessed them in this. They learned quickly and they learned well. Daniel, it says, was given the supernatural ability of interpreting dreams. We're going to see God just in chapter 2 of Daniel. God will use him to influence Nebuchadnezzar in, in another fashion here. Um, at the end of the training, though, they have a final exam. And this final exam is before King Nebuchadnezzar himself. He was the one asking the questions. And they appear and stand before the king. And after their time of examinations, he says that they are better than, ten times better than all the rest. And they were ten times better, not just of the rest of the group that was in this education program, but they were ten times better than even the current advisors and magicians that he had in the land. They were noticeably, noticeably different and clearly could see the hand of God on these lives of these individuals. Now, I do want to caution us because sometimes we can take uh, these historical accounts and we can draw some, some wealth and prosperity gospel messages out of this. If we just do this, then, then God will bless And God will bless exactly the way that we think is God blessing. Remember, these young men were still slaves. They were still torn from their families. 
And God was clearly blessing him and moving them just to the place where he had them to be. But with these blessings also create a whole new set of problems or opportunities. As we continue on in the story in Daniel and we see in these lives here. And so the lesson on all this is that God's will would be accomplished and that he would be glorified no matter what the circumstances. But we see that they trusted God to bring about his results. Verse 21 gives us a, a statement really of Daniel's long life. Um, when it says Daniel was there until the first reign of King Cyrus, Daniel would actually uh, uh, serve under four different kings in his time in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar that we see in this story, Belshazzar, uh, King Darius, and then King Cyrus. Uh, by the time if Daniel was 17 years old, when this starts, this story starts, by the end of chapter 10 of Daniel, where it says in the third reign of King Cyrus, he would have been 85 years old by that time. And really, I think what we're seeing here is a statement of, that God is, is, is a statement of long life for Daniel and God's blessing in the midst of difficult circumstances. So my question here as we wrap up is, so where is God at work in my life? Think back to the last year. Think back to the last month. Maybe even the last week. What's going on in my life? Where is God at work in my life? What are the circumstances or the direction, the difficulties, the problems? Or opportunities that I'm facing. And will I trust God that he has my best in the long run in these circumstances? Will I trust God that he will bring about his glory, which is to my benefit? Bringing God the glory. Are you ready this morning, on January 1, 2012, are you ready to take a stand and say, Lord, whatever is going on, I'm going to resolve today to bring you glory in the midst of it. Maybe we're not big on resolutions, but let's say this. Why don't we make it a goal for this coming year? Maybe even let's just take it, let's make it a goal for this week, that wherever I find myself, whatever's going on, I'm going to bring you glory, Lord Jesus.